It is nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT on 100.1 FM. It is your public radio station broadcasting from Signal Hill in beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where it is 28 degrees. We are looking at fair skies, 60% humidity out at the airport, where they are also showing west winds to 15 miles per hour and 10 miles of visibility. The weather service is calling for partly sunny skies today, mostly clear tonight, sunny skies tomorrow, and sunny skies on Thursday too. Highs in the lower 30s to upper 20s, and lows in the upper teens overnight. Coming up on the Midday Report, Kodiak's tanner season is just about over. Kodiak History Museum is digitizing its collection. They're hoping to make it more accessible. And chickens. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. At 9 o'clock Eastern tonight, President Biden delivers his first State of the Union address to a Congress divided, with a Republican-led House still largely questioning his legitimacy, and to a country divided. Polling shows some 40 percent of Americans say they were better off financially before Biden became president. But tonight, the president intends to reiterate calls for unity. NPR's Asma Khalid reports he will announce a set of new policies he thinks Republicans and Democrats can work with. There is no doubt the president intends to take a bit of a victory lap tonight, and that includes touting legislative accomplishments and economic progress. But Biden also plans to build on priorities he articulated last year. Kate Bedingfield is White House Communications Director. In his State of the Union today, the president will announce a new set of policies to continue to make progress advancing his unity agenda and deliver results for families across the country. This unity agenda includes efforts to end cancer, support veterans, tackle mental health, and take on the opioid epidemic. The White House says all of these are issues where members of both political parties can find common ground. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Night has fallen and so have temperatures in Turkey and Syria, making the job harder for rescue crews trying to find survivors buried underneath thousands of destroyed buildings. In some cases, desperate family members are using their hands to pry up rubble in the hopes of finding loved ones missing since Monday's earthquake. The death toll has now topped 7,000. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more from Istanbul. Turkey estimates more than 8,000 people have been rescued alive from the rubble of thousands of buildings that collapsed from the initial quake and its hundreds of aftershocks. But rescue crews are struggling against freezing temperatures and snow to rescue those who are still trapped, trying to reach them before they succumb to their injuries or hypothermia. The situation in northwest Syria in the midst of a civil war is more dire. The only road the U.N. authorizes to carry aid to that part of the country from Turkey has been damaged, leaving hundreds of thousands of people without electricity, heat, and in many cases, shelter. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Istanbul. 
Dozens of countries are coming together to help. They're sending teams and equipment. That includes firefighters and search dogs from Los Angeles County and urban rescue workers from Northern Virginia. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv that Israel and the Palestinian Authority are also sending help. The Palestinians are usually recipients of international aid because of conflict with Israel and Israel's occupation of the West Bank. But the Palestinian Authority has its own rescue and trauma team of 64 doctors and specialists who respond to international disasters. They were recently in Pakistan helping flood victims. Now they say they're headed to Syria and Turkey in the coming days. This is NPR News. NPR News is brought to you in part by Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. For an appointment or more information, 481-2400. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. Kodiak's Tanner Crab Fleet spent the first two weeks of the season tied up at the docks, awaiting better prices from local seafood processors. And after a highly anticipated opener just over a week ago, the season is nearly over. Most of the fishery had closed by the end of the weekend. KMXT's Kirsten Dobroth has this update. Fisherman Eddie Perez was selling tanners from his boat, the Vero Victoria, on Monday morning. He had about 500 crabs on board when he pulled up to the dock, and he expected to sell out by noon. Everybody's been really excited, happy that local fishermen are offering to the community, and it's been going pretty good. Kodiak's tanner crab season started last Monday, two weeks after the scheduled opener when the entire fleet refused to go fishing because of low prices from local processors. And after a few early days of heavy rain and fog, the clouds parted and fishing went fast. Kodiak's tanner crab fishery is divided into three main sections. The biggest is the east side, which has a harvest level of 4 million pounds of tanners this year. 99 vessels had been fishing on the east side of the island since fishermen set their gear last week. That entire quota was caught by the weekend, and Alaska's Department of Fish and Game closed the area Sunday afternoon. Fishing is slowing down in other areas, too. Fish and Game announced that the fishery's southeast section would close Monday evening. Just about a quarter of the quota in the fishery's southwest section was left as of Monday. This year's harvest level for Kodiak's entire tanner crab fishery is 5.8 million pounds, more than five times the size of last year. Biologists from Fish and Game expected this year's big quota to be the peak of a cohort they've been watching since 2018. But Perez says he's optimistic about the years to come. By what I saw, I think we got a couple more seasons, healthy seasons coming for us. Meanwhile, more than a dozen boats were sitting on anchor just outside the downtown harbor on Monday. Word on the dock was that wait times to tie up at one of the local processors was four to five days. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. The Kodiak History Museum received a $48,000 federal grant last fall to digitize its entire collection. KMXT's Brian Venois reports it's part of an effort to improve access to some of the museum's items that aren't currently on display. The project began in November of last year when the museum received a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, a government agency, to create a digital archive. Margaret Greidart is the collection manager and grants coordinator for the Kodiak History Museum. It's to photograph every single one of our objects in our museum collection and put them on our database and then make those images public in 2024. She says part of the project is to improve the museum's transparency. 
We've had a, only about 10% of our collections on display right now. And so we need to figure out ways to make those more accessible for people so people know what we have. We do hold all of these things in public trust. But Great Art says another part of wanting to photograph everything is because many of the items will move soon. We store over 2,300 objects and 1,300 archive collections in this building. It's a 200-year-old building. It's not great for that. And so in the next few years, we're partnering with um, the Alutic Museum to hopefully move some of our stuff into a new facility. While they hope nothing is damaged in the move, museum staff want to have each item documented before it's transported. We are taking two to three images of each object, so like a front and a back and maybe a detail. Tiffany Cannon is a museum assistant and one of the folks operating the museum's in-house studio. The studio has a small white background with a few modest lights and a tripod to ensure consistency with the images. She says it took a while to learn how to use the camera and get set up, but she loves seeing the museum's pieces in detail and in a new perspective. A lot of what we have like, is art and not even just like paintings or things like that, but like handwoven baskets and taxidermy and just all, all kinds of things that people have painstakingly crafted and you just can see so much of the beauty and you can really appreciate the items that we have through these images. Cannon says she's excited to be part of the project and help the museum share its collection with a broader audience. It's going to be nice that people far away are able to go onto our website and if they're researching and want to know something about the baskets or in Alaska or something like that, that they have that available now. Once objects are online, they will be tagged with searchable keywords. Museum staff anticipate the project will be completed in May of next year and they plan to continue to add their other collections for public viewing online as well. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Venois. Matt Hall won the Yukon Quest 300 yesterday. The Two Rivers-based musher crossed the finish line in Central with nine dogs at 4.17 p.m. The 300 was perfect. It was fun, and here we are, and I get to have a drink and go home. Hall, a former Quest 1,000-mile winner, says... His team was led by dogs Dai and Bestie. Dai, he's just he's my all-time top lead dog. Um, every every race I've finished um, since I could remember. Isaac Tford, a handler for five-time Iditarod champion Dallas CV, finished about an hour behind Hall to claim second place in the 300. Ron Stifler Jr. of Fairbanks finished third last night. Meanwhile. Brett Brent Sass continues to lead the Quest 550, followed by Wade Mars, Riley Dyke, Nick Petit, Amanda Otto, and Cody Straith, all making their way toward two rivers where mushers must rest four hours. Both this year's 300 and 550 milers included mushing from central to circle and back for a total of about 175 miles on Birch Creek, a section of trail that dealt with a mix of challenges. KU, KUAC's Lex Trinan has this report. The run along Birch Creek is notoriously cold and hard. This year, 300 musher Vicki Justice says she only saw it reach minus 30 on the thermometer she keeps attached to her sled. That's better than last time when it was 60 below. Some mushers have strategies to deal with the cold. Isaac Tiford says he does air squats to keep his blood flowing when temperatures get cold. 
probably looks a little strange, but it it helps. The cold is one thing, but the monotony might just be worse. The winding oxbows of Birch Creek are known to lull mushers into hallucinations. Tiford also has a strategy to keep his mind active. He writes songs about his dogs. So anyone out here hears me on the trail might hear me singing a rendition of Prophet, the red-nosed lead dog. Even <laughs> with strategies for coping with the cold and tedium, the exhaustion can still get to mushers. Mushers often sit on the back of their sleds for a good chunk of the 80-mile stretch from Central to Circle. But as they approach town, the dog drivers are suddenly confronted with sharp turns on icy roads that can catch them off guard. As 300 musher Ashley Dove found out. She misses the penultimate right-hand turn to get to the checkpoint, but luckily her team only lost a few seconds. After regaining the trail, she says from the back of her sled that other than the cold, the run was smooth. No, the trail was actually pretty nice out there. 550 musher Deke Noctgeboren also admitted to making some bad decisions because of his exhaustion. For him, it was as simple as drinking a cup of coffee. I'm supposed to take a nap, but it sounded really good, so, you know. But luckily for Noxgaboran, he already had a nap out on Birch Creek before arriving in Circle. Even with that short snooze, though, he had started to hallucinate on the trail into town. Start hearing voices and stuff. Inside the checkpoint in the fire hall of Circle, mushers have a chance to recover a little before heading back down Birch Creek a second time. The checkpoint had plenty of food this year, including some moose stew donated in a crock pot by the local store. 550 musher Cody Straith was fueled up after his layover. A breakfast burrito and some sweet potato chicken casserole. <laughs> Still, he wasn't too excited about going right back up Birch Creek, at least not before blasting his Marcus King playlist through his earbuds. Psyching myself up to see everything I've already seen. It's going to be good, though. Dogs, dogs will, I think the dogs will enjoy it. Maybe they'll feel like we're going home. Maybe that'll be good for them. Maybe they'll be like, what are we doing? This is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it said after his dogs got soaked in overflow on the Chino River on the first run of the quest, they're now afraid of any open water, which is an inevitable occurrence on Birch Creek. So they're not wanting to lead anymore. So that means I get to run in front of them through it to show them it's okay. 300 musher Ron Stifler also has his dogs on mind as he prepares to leave Circle handing his dogs frozen chicken skins. They ate them quick enough, they each got two. Yeah, it's got a lot of fat in it, so they, uh, they love it this time of the race. Stifler says the snacks should be enough to keep his dogs running for a few more hours, even if their driver is hallucinating on the endless turns of Birch Creek. Reporting on the Yukon Quest Trail and Circle, I'm Lex Trinan. Egg shortages and ongoing supply chain issues have inspired conversations about food security all across Alaska. In Kenai, some city council members say it's a good time to loosen restrictions on owning chickens inside city limits, but some residents aren't so pleased with the idea. KDLL's Sabine Pooks has more. It's cold and snowing in Nikiski, but the hens in Lisa Hansen's backyard coop don't seem to mind. So these are some of the ladies. Hi, girls. Come on. The eight hens are just a portion of Hansen's flock. She's in the process of moving them out to her homestead from Kenai, where she was previously renting a home with her family. In city limits, Hansen's daughter had an educational permit to host some chickens for a 4-H project. When they applied to renew it, they were denied, partly on the basis that they had more chickens than they were allowed. The Board of Adjustments gave them one additional year and told them to reduce the size of their flock. 
Even though Hansen doesn't live in Kenai anymore, she says she wants to make sure residents within Kenai city limits can have flocks of chickens if they want to, regardless of whether they have a special permit. And she's supporting an ordinance in Kenai to allow hens on some small lots in the city. I think it's important to me and to my family because the way it affected us and the opportunity that was limited for our daughter, for our family, um, it was, we were hugely impacted. Um, the current ordinance revives a debate about keeping chickens within city limits, which has come up and been defeated by the council twice before. The new ordinance, as written, would allow Kenai residents to keep 12 hens on lots smaller than 40,000 square feet. As it stands, residents in some parts of the city can already keep chickens on parcels larger than that, and residents on smaller parcels can apply for conditional permits to do so. The ordinance would not allow residents to keep roosters, and there would be certain neighborhoods where chickens would still be illegal, including in parts of Old Town Kenai. Hens would be limited to enclosed shelters or would have to be fully fenced in, and there are rules about setbacks. The ordinance is sponsored by Kenai City Council members Alex Dothit and Tia Winger, who say it's important to allow chickens inside city limits for food security, citing the high price of eggs and ongoing supply chain issues. But the ordinance is controversial. At a city council meeting Wednesday, Kenai residents made impassioned testimony on either side. Dan Canetta says he moved to the Woodlands subdivision in 1998 so he wouldn't have to live next to farm animals or sled dogs. If I wanted to live in an area with less regulations, I could have, have bought property outside city limits as there are plenty of lots to choose from. Many neighbors say they're worried about the impacts of noise or chickens running loose. Council members proposed amendments that would reduce the number of chickens allowed in some areas or restrict coops to yards behind people's houses. Councilmember Deborah Sonart says she thought the ordinance was too broad as written and left too many questions unanswered. But if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And even if it just means another 10 days or another 14 days, let's get it done right instead of trying to rush it through tonight. And then down the road, sorry, I have to do the pun, we end up with egg on our face. Last month, the ordinance got conditional approval from the city's planning and zoning commission, which said it would like to hammer out some of the details before putting forth a final rule. After a long discussion this week, the council agreed to send the ordinance back to the commission for another look. It will hold a work session later this month to hash out details, and then the ordinance will come back to the council next month for an additional chance for public comment. Hansen will be cheering the ordinance on from her homestead in Nikiski. She finds the food security argument compelling. She says when she had chickens in Kenai, she'd hand out eggs to her neighbors. It's, it's really important being able to have the opportunity to have people have the option to have chickens if they want some. She's plans for expansion of the homestead, including six chicken coops, sheep, and high tunnels. And now that she's not in Kenai anymore, she has free range to do so. In Kenai, I'm Sabine Pooks. Alaskans have been pursuing healthier lifestyles by many measures, but disturbing trends of violence and suicide continue to plague the population, according to status reports released by the Alaska Department of Health. The Alaska Beacon reports that the Healthy Alaskans 2020 final report and scorecard issued by the department last week painted a mixed picture of progress over a decade. Among the 25 indicators measured were some targets accomplished, but also some setbacks. Among the striking improvements shown in the 2020 results released last week was a reduction in the rate of cancer deaths in Alaska, 
While cancer remains the leading cause of death in the state, the rate fell significantly, decreasing by more than 15% over two decades. More positive news was shown in declines of tobacco use and binge drinking. Additionally, there was increased access to medical care and support. Negative trends shown in the scorecard were statistics for the various traumatic harms that Alaskans continue to suffer. Suicide rates increased by more than 25% in the last decade, and rates of rape increased by about 20% in just six years. Rates of domestic violence increased, but not as dramatically, according to the scorecard. Previewing the State of the Union's economic message. I'm Novasafo with a Marketplace Minute. President Biden delivers the State of the Union address tonight. The White House says he will highlight economic recovery over the last couple of years and the strong labor market. He will also call on Congress to pass new policies, including a $35 a month cap on the price of insulin, a ban on so-called junk fees such as hotel resort fees, a billionaire minimum tax, a proposal first made almost a year ago, and higher taxes on corporate stock buybacks. The president has particularly taken aim at stock buybacks by oil and gas giants. In rebuttal, Republicans are expected to call for government spending cuts to reduce federal budget deficits and the nation's debt. I'm Novasafo with the Marketplace Minute. It's a tough time, but each of us can make a difference in the lives of Alaskans. All you have to do is give via pick, click, give by supporting Alaska's nonprofits when you apply for your PFD. You aren't just donating. You're giving more opportunity, more hope, more chances. You're changing the lives of Alaskans with the click of a button. Don't forget to pick, click, give when you fill out your PFD application this year. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to your Island Messenger. For Tuesday, it is the 7th day of January, the year 2023. The sun rose today at 8.58. It won't set again until 5.49. That will give us 8 hours and 50 minutes of daylight a gain of 4 minutes and 38 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record high for this date was 48 degrees, set in 1982, and our record low temperature was minus 1, set in 1943 and 1993. Currently 30 degrees outside. We have fair skies, 56% humidity, and out at the airport they are showing northwest winds to 12 miles per hour, gusting to 20. They also show 10 miles of visibility. The Weather Service is calling for partly sunny skies for the rest of the afternoon with a high near 32, west winds to 20, gusting to 30. For tonight, mostly clear skies with a low of 19, west winds to 20, gusting to 25. And for tomorrow, sunny skies, high near 29, west winds to 5, becoming completely calm tomorrow morning. They are also calling for sunny skies on Thursday, chance of snow on Friday. Looking at our local tides, we have a high tide coming up at 2.43 this afternoon here on the east side. That will be a 9-foot tide 
followed by a low tide at 9.14 tonight of minus 6 tenths. Over on the west side, your high tide will happen at 3.15 this afternoon. That will be a 14.2-foot tide in Larson Bay. It will be followed by a low tide at 9.49 this evening of minus 9 tenths. Mariners, here is your forecast from Marmot Island to Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side offshore. Small craft advisory through tonight. West winds to 30 knots and seas to 13 feet today. For tonight, west winds to 30 knots, diminishing to 15 knots after midnight. Seas 12 feet, subsiding to 9 feet after midnight. And for tomorrow on our east side, variable 10, seas to 7 feet. I should tell you they are calling for Friday through Saturday. Southwest winds to 30 knots, seas to 19 feet. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, small craft advisory through tonight. They also are calling for freezing spray in the Shelikoff. For today, west winds to 30 knots, seas to 8 feet with freezing spray. For tonight, west winds to 30 knots, diminishing to 20 knots after midnight, seas to 6 feet with freezing spray. And for tomorrow, southwest winds to 15, seas to 3 feet. Thursday through Friday in the Shelikoff, northeast 25, seas to 6 feet. The following are upcoming Kodiak Island Borough public meetings. On Tuesday, February 7th, the Women's Bay Service Area Board will be having its regular meeting in the Women's Bay Fire Hall at 5.30 p.m. On Wednesday, February 8th, a planning and zoning work session will occur in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. And on Thursday, February 9th, the Kodiak Island Borough Assembly will be having its work session in the Borough Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. These meetings are open to the public, and the meeting packets are available on the Kodiak Island Borough website. Contact the Borough Clerk's Office at 907-486-9310 with any questions. And remember, Assembly meetings will be live-streamed on Kodiak Island Borough's YouTube channel. Subscribe to get live-stream notifications. The Kodiak City Council will hold a work session tonight. The meeting will begin at 7.30 p.m. and they will be having their regular meeting on Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Both meetings are open to the public and will be held in the Kodiak Public Library. Public members are also encouraged to tune in right here at KMXT on 100.1 FM to listen to the meeting and the meetings will be web streamed and the web streaming links and meeting packets are available on the City of Kodiak website. If you have any questions about any of this, contact the City Clerk's Office at 907-486-8636. And notices hereby given, there will be a Board of Education work session on Wednesday. That will begin at 6.30 p.m. in the District Services Conference Room, which is F-140 of the Old High School Wing. The meeting will also be streamed through Blue Jeans, and login information is posted on the Kodiak Island Borough School District website, under the Board of Education tab. If you'd like more information, contact the Secretary to the Board of Education at 907-486-7566. And remember, agendas are subject to change. The online agenda is the only official one. Kodiak Maritime Museum will be holding its annual meeting 6.30 p.m. on Friday at the Kodiak College Room 130. A brief business meeting will be followed by a presentation from shipwright, sailor, and author Will Sofren on sailing the three-masted tall ship HMS Surprise 
from Rhode Island to California. The ship was featured in the film Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. And again, that's this next Friday at 6.30 p.m., room 130 of the Kodiak College. Things happening at the library include tomorrow's Lego Club. That happens at 3.30 p.m. at the library. Children under 10 must be accompanied by an adult. On Thursdays at 10.30 a.m., the library hosts a lapsit story time for babies 0 to 3 and their adults. Join volunteer Abby Hanna to share a story and a song with some quality time to play and socialize. And the library's monthly tabletop role-playing games group is meeting on Friday. That happens at 3.45 p.m. Ages 10 and older are welcome. If you are under 18, you must be accompanied by a guardian who is also playing the game. Players are able to participate at the discretion of the volunteering game master. Sign up by calling or stopping by the library. And on Saturday, from 1 to 4 p.m., the library will be holding an afternoon craft for Valentine's Day. Learn how to make a pop-up Valentine card to send to your favorite author or loved one. Sign-ups are requested. It's for ages 12 and older, and supplies are provided by the library. If any of this sounds interesting to you, call the library up at 907-486-8686. And don't forget, Heather Lendy will be visiting Kodiak Public Library later this month and will offer an obituary writing course on February 25th. You can sign up now at the library for that. And the 2023 Kodiak Outdoor Film Festival is coming up. The Island Trails Network is collecting submissions for the 13th annual Kodiak Outdoor Film Festival, which will be held Friday, April 7th. The deadline to submit your entries is March 31st, so get out there and start filming your adventures. Visit www.islandtrails.org film for guidelines. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 12.20, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.